This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Frames Magazine, a quarterly publication dedicated to showcasing great photography. The editors of Frames believe that the final destination of a great photograph is on the printed page. Each quarter, they release a beautifully printed 110-page issue that showcases photography that you will love and that will inspire you. Subscribe today or order a previous issue by visiting readframes.com forward slash join and use the coupon code THECANDIDFRAME to enjoy a 10% discount on both yearly and monthly subscription plans. Choosing to work on a long-term documentary project is a big moment for any photographer. That decision becomes more complicated, though, when the subject of the work is your own family. Even if you don't have feelings of doubt or insecurity about it, there is sometimes resistance on the part of family members, especially when you're exploring sensitive family stories and, and issues. Yet, when you're able to get past such things, the work can be powerful and moving. Debbie Arlick's project, 1-1000, is a unique effort because it involves a special collaboration between her, her sister, Lori, and Lori's adult son, David. David lives with a unique and incurable type of epilepsy, Lennox-Gestalt syndrome. David experiences multiple seizures a day and also contends with scoliosis and severe autism, requiring 24-hour care, most of which is provided by his mother. The work also explores themes of family, motherhood, and what it means to be a long-term caregiver. It's a story that I'm honored to share with you today. This is Ibadi and X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Thank you for for agreeing to to do this. I've been following your sister's work for a while. I've always enjoyed it. But this this particular project really moved me and and piqued my interest. Tell me about growing up with each other. No, oh, that's a cute story. Oh, well, let me Jersey. Start. Yeah, yeah, you start. We grew up in New Jersey, suburbia. Um, and Debbie's my big sister. I always looked up to Debbie. Three years older. The the great story was that I love. Debbie was in, I don't know, Debbie, if you were still in Brownies or Girl Scouts, must have been Girl Scouts. And Debbie would get all of these little patches for learning this and learning that and doing this. And one day- Badges. 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 You had to earn them. Yeah. (laughs) So one day you came home in your your green little uh, Girl Scouts dress. You said, come on, Lori, I'm going to teach you how to build a fire. (laughs) We're- (laughs) In, in the in the garage or in the driveway, it must have been in the driveway, right? Yeah. We go and gather some sticks, and Debbie teaches me how to arrange the sticks in sort of a square, almost like a log cabin with the sticks, and started a fire in the driveway. <laughs> About that. Oh my goodness! Thank goodness, you know, like the garage didn't burn down or anything. Well, I had a badge. I knew what I was doing. <laughs> so, so that that's the beginning. I taught my daughter, my daughter, my sister how to make fire. So, I'm going to remember that okay. because that's pretty much the essence of life, Lori. You can um, thank me for your life. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was the dynamic between the the, the two of you? Were I mean, you mentioned that you know she she was your older sister, but I have three younger brothers, and the dynamic between each of us is very is very different. I'm very curious as to, to what yours were, especially as you started coming up. Go ahead, Deb. I thought you were going to take that one. Lori was the cutest little kid, and I just have always loved her. And it doesn't matter how many days, months, you know, years apart we are. We are complete simpatico. And... From growing up to this day, we are on such a path of closeness that it's like I would do things first and then Lori would do them, whether it was by choice or not. It it ended up even being life circumstances. 
And so then I could guide her as things happened to her. And then there would be times when, you know, when we got deep into spiritual practice, we would be there for each other. So very uh, all encompassing. If one was having a tough time, the other was there to help the other one. And, and it happened effortlessly. And we have always been there for each other, whether it's just being silly or, or the serious stuff in life. And um, we, we recognize that constantly. It's not a new thing for us, our gratitude for each other. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we or I always say we're not only blood sisters, we're soul sisters. Well, Debbie was saying me following her. Debbie got married. I got married two, two years later. Debbie had her first child. I had my first child two years later. For a while, I was following two years behind on all of the life events, of <laughs> as well. Yeah. We've also been in step with our spiritual growth, following the same teachers or not, but always seeming in, in lockstep. And from my perspective, as my older sister, Debbie's always been the one that I call. She's always been my confidant. She's always been the one to wit witness my life, even though for much of our adult life, we lived on two different coasts. I was still in New Jersey where we grew up. She moved to California, which was great when I was up all hours of the night with my son, David. I could call Debbie because she was three hours earlier. And we have an older sister who at the time was living in Hawaii. So if I was up really late, <laughs> like 4 a.m., I could call her. She was six hours earlier. But the beauty of this project that we're doing now is that the witnessing that Debbie has done all these years has now come into form. It's actual photos witness witnessing my life with david in in the photos and it's it's a beautiful evolution from witnessing in the sense of hearing me on the phone hearing me talk and seeing my life to now creating uh, a body of work that witnesses my life as well it's it's very poetic <laughs> yeah, I started off our conversation wanting to know more about your relationship with each other because I, I think that the project is as much uh, an exploration of your relationship with your son as it is your relationship with your sister. Yes. Because it, the ability to be able to do this, to be able to be so vulnerable and so open with each of your lives really speaks to the dynamic that exists between the three of you. And it's one of the things that has attracted me to bodies of work where people focus on, on their own lives, but it's not simply from a place of an objective observer. It's about being an actual participant as you're creating, creating the work, which obviously offers a host of, of challenges, but opens a lot of doors that otherwise might not be available. So let's talk a little more about your son's condition, if you can explain it to our listeners, what it is and when when you first became aware uh, of it. Sure. So David is diagnosed with a rare seizure disorder. It's called Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. Basically, it's um, the, a, an umbrella name for multiple seizure types. So he experiences multiple seizure types. They are resistant to treatment. So he's 28 now. Throughout his life, he has had three brain surgeries. He's been on approximately 30 different seizure medications. Um, he had a device implanted in his chest called the vagus nerve stimulator that was meant to send uh, impulses to the vagus nerve in hopes of calming brain activity. None of this, none of these interventions have stopped his seizures. Um, he still has them regularly. Uh, and, and along with that is uh, neurological impairment. 
because of this constant assault of not only seizures, but irregular brain activity that's occurring in the background all of the time. So when David was an infant, he seemed normal. He passed all his scores when he was born. Um, but the unusual thing that happened when he was a couple months old, and I would hold him up by my shoulder, he'd have be holding his head up and then occasionally drop his head on my shoulder. And I thought, oh, I guess that's odd. He doesn't quite have the neck control yet. But at two months, that's old enough to have neck control. Later on, we learned that those are head drops. It's a type of seizure that occurs in infants. And this initial diagnosis was called infantile spasms. And he would go on to be just dropping his head um, sporadically, like on the high chair when he was young. And infantile spasms is, I think, the, well, it's definitely one of the leading causes that then develops into the disorder he has now, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And uh, the neuroscience world doesn't know why it develops into Lennox-Gastaut syndrome and other similar uh, conditions in childhood, epileptic conditions that do develop into Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. This is where all the research is really needed to intervene at that point to get a control of what's the underlying issue that keeps the seizures coming that then develops into Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. So kind of just a snapshot there. Um, but one other piece I want to add is that in our quest to try to stop the seizures, we went away from allopathic traditional um, medicine to, to try to find alternative uh, methods to stop the seizures. So we went as far south as Brazil to the, the famed healer, well, infamous at this point, John of God, which didn't help. I mean, then we went as far north as Ukraine to the town of Bucha, which most people know about now where the terrible massacres occurred. We spent time there. Uh, David's dad is from that region. That was the USSR when he was young uh, to see a, a healer there as well. So we've tried herbs, we've tried spiritual healings, we've tried energy healings, uh, so many different things. And unfortunately, he continues to have seizures to this day. Mm. One of the things that happens when you become you know, a caregiver, especially in, in, in this way, is that there's a feeling of loss. I know that um, with my mother-in-law and, and with my, especially with my mom, in terms of she's, she's losing her short-term memory. And so we can get together. If I leave for an hour and come back, she'll not have remembered that I was there. Mm. And I took her to get her hair done. And we went to her, her friend's house and we went out to lunch. And one of the things I had to get used to was the fact that I was the only one of us who was going to remember this time together. Mm. It saddened me, but at, at, at the same time, I've co sort of come to reluctantly, re reluctantly accept it and that I'm appreciative of the fact that I'm able to spend time with us, her and, and remember for the both of us. Yeah. But a part of me is sad that I don't have my mother, at least the mother that I, I, I remembered and the mother that I'd hoped to continue to have. Um, and I'm wondering what that journey has been like, like for you in terms of coming to terms with that loss and how it's how you have transformed it especially through your spiritual practice yeah there there is definitely uh, grief involved in having somebody with a long-term illness such as david's and early on for any parent it's important to grieve the the loss of the the child that you thought you were going to have the hopes and dreams of the life of, of this child. And I think and there isn't enough attention given to that for parents. There's, a, there's that initial big grief, and then there are small grief, grieving moments all along, really in any of our lives. 
it's it's a matter of paying attention to the heart and it's also a matter of being present to each moment and what we do have independent of our thoughts of the future or our thoughts of the past that's what came to my mind when you were speaking about your mother yeah maybe there isn't the memories but there is in each present moment and for her every moment is fresh with you so that's something that my spiritual practice offers to me is this moment this moment this moment and sometimes in this moment it is grief you know it doesn't mm-hmm. mean everything is roses of course but when we can do that there's an opening of the human heart i've had profound moments of sadness where i've been able to sort of pull back and witness my own sadness and in that witnessing at the same time recognize the beauty of the human heart that we are endowed with these feeling centers that can love another so much that great sadness appears i mean there's a you know it's a, it's a sweet beauty to sadness the fact that we can feel sadness that we can love so much that we feel sadness for another there's a beauty to that and i don't think i would have ever been able to have that perspective without having the capacity to sit and observe my own experience and pull back and and the natural outflow of that is an appreciation even for the sad moments yeah i think that for me caring for my mother-in-law who passed away last year and we were taking care of for three years as well as helping with the care of my mother really helped me to appreciate the moment which is kind of interesting because as a photographer I'm kind of fixated with the moment right in terms of being present and being aware and and I didn't realize how how noisy my head was when I didn't have a camera in front of me mm-hmm. and then in caring for you know for these two it reinforced the importance of just being there and sometimes not having the ability to fix it to change it but simply accept it yeah that there's a there's amazing power and beauty that can be had from really sort of difficult circumstances like that mm-hmm. i think that one of the things that i i found that friends didn't really know what to say or how to talk about what we were experiencing and what i am experiencing and it's kind of like when someone loses someone because they passed away and people really struggle with the right thing to say um or how to behave when someone is is sort of deep in grief or experiencing loss what was it like what was that like for you what was your journey in terms of finding your place in being able to be supportive loving i would say that lori my role with lori was that i sort of took upon myself was to add levity to her life to detract her or distract her <laughs> either way from the hardships that she was experiencing continually you know and i would joke with her and we'd just do silly things and it was really just to make her laugh that was a role that i took on for many many years and still do I like to I like to tease her. I think it's important. And the funny thing is when I'm with Lori and David, I will tease Lori and bring David in on the joke and he'll laugh. And you know, I remember in the beginning because we we you know, David is a whole person. David isn't uh, a shell. He's a whole person and so and we believe that uh David understands everything. That's we believe that in our hearts. and there've been things that we've seen that confirm it but do we really know you know we don't really know but we know in our hearts so i guess i started the project because i don't know i just always photographed them the family you know you and i we have our cameras with us but in excess it's important that is that is our present moment you know, back to what you were saying before it's that tool of meditation you know we can sit in meditation 
uh, with intent, or we can have the camera with us, which is that tool, as I was saying, that mechanism that then is sort of like that window into that, that other state of mind. Frames Magazine is what I believe a great photography magazine should be. It's a beautifully printed publication that shows great photography the way it should be showcased on paper. The editors carefully curate each issue, providing a diverse range of work from every genre of photography. Each issue is a deep dive into great contemporary photography by the likes of Steve McCurry, Amy Vitale, Martin Parr, and others. Each issue consists of 110 pages of amazing work produced on quality paper, ensuring that each issue will be part of your collection for decades. I'm positive that it's the kind of content that you will return to over and over again as you grow as a photographer. Subscribe today by visiting readframes.com forward slash join and use the discount code Frame to enjoy a 10% discount on both yearly and monthly subscriptions. As, as, as you indicated, David's not verbal, so he cannot express himself in, in words. He finds other ways to, to do it. But it was important that he be in agreement with what you wanted to do in terms of, yes. uh, in terms of this, this project. Talk to, talk to me, both of you talk to me in terms of, you know, the initial forays into it and what it felt like, you know, uh, yeah. beginning this journey together. Well, just briefly, at the moment that it came to me, to, like I got this message, I got a, you know, we, we get these sort of, I will call it a divine message of, of the soul. And um, as I was photographing David in this moment in, in their home in Colorado, I, this message, this hit says, you need to make a project about Lori and David. And I'm having this conversation now with the self in this, you know, brief moment saying, yeah, like, wow, my heart opens. I know I have to do this, but I don't shoot documentary. That's, that's not my area. What's going to look like? How am I going to do it? And it's just like, you, you will find out. You just, you know, you need to move forward. And I'm thinking, okay, I got to ask Lori. Lori's wanted to write a book for years and years. She started writing books. She gets ready and then things happen. You know, it's, it's tough to get out there to, Put, to put yourself out there, right? To be so vulnerable. And I'm like, okay, I don't know if she's going to say yes, but I'm asking her and I like get serious. And I ask her and I tell her, you know, that it would be done, you know, to, to witness their lives, to tell their story, to give her that chance. And she pauses and it's a long pause. And it seems like we're both going to cry in this moment because we know that this is a really important moment here. And then she says, yes. And, um, and, and I got the yes. And, 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 and I'm like jumping inside. Everything is moving in my body. I'm completely alive and fearful and excited, you know, every emotion. And then I said, I have to ask David. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is, what's going to happen? Even I, I don't have words because what was going to happen at that moment? And, and I'm knowing this is part of what my life has led me to in this moment, my ability to use the camera to tell their story has brought me to this moment. So I can do this for my sister. What's going to happen? And I ask David and I say, I oh, will do this with respect and, and honor. And if ever I make you uncomfortable, you show me in some way and I will stop and I will put the camera down. And I asked him this question and he leaned in very close to me and held my eyes and had never, ever done this before. And then he leaned back and Lori and I looked at each other and we're like, holy shit, we got our yes. Yeah. It, so that's my version. What's your version, Lori? Because we once told the story a little bit differently and we're like, wait a minute, you were standing here. No, but wait, I was standing over here. <laughs> You know, each person has this this different view, right? You can be the same people and the same experience, but 
see it differently. Yeah, I think the only thing we, we uh, couldn't agree on is where we were both standing at the moment. So, but from my, from my seat, when Debbie, so Debbie had been photographing, she, she lowered her camera and she was quiet for a moment. Yeah. And got serious and said, can I make a documentary of you and David? And my initial reaction was, hell no. <laughs> I, I was imagining, you know, because I know the intimate kinds of photos she takes. And I imagined that out there for the public. And and my first reaction was no and fear as I started to think about it, the the level of exposure. Again, going back to my my spiritual practice and just personal growth, I know that if I'm feeling great fear and it's not a lion and tiger and or tiger in front of me, there's something to lean into there. Mm -hmm. Precisely because I know that I I opened up to to feeling curious about it, and and as soon as I sort of leaned into it, that's when tears started to come to my eyes and my heart opened. And I said, yes, because I knew that it would be something much bigger than just our lives that would be affected. Like who in that moment, I, I my thought was who knows who else this is going to affect by, by sharing our lives together. So it felt very big. Yeah, and the moment with David was so precious because he doesn't um, have any formal method of communication. It's it's not always obvious what he's thinking, what he's feeling, but this was a very obvious, yeah, yeah, go for it. When people say yes to being documented, there's that usual aversion in terms of how they're going to be seen and how they're going to be perceived, especially when they know that aspects of their lives that up to that point have been extremely private are going to be documented. And there's, of course, issues of vanity and how am I going to look and so on and so forth that go on with that. But along with with that, you are also aware in terms of how your son might be rendered in in these images, especially in those situations where you probably never really gave a thought in terms of how this looked like visually. It was just you just were doing what you were doing to take care of him. And so how how... How did your relationship with your sister, your awareness of her work, help you in terms of those moments where you felt that resistance to, to moments when you're going, I'm not sure whether I want this photographed or not? Not because of how I look, but how it might make my son look. Yeah, yeah. That, that was a big, big part of it, actually. Because a lot of caring for David is dressing him, undressing him, and there were some images of him partially unclothed, not never fully unclothed, where I felt uncomfortable with that. And there was a lot of time I spent sitting with that. Um, and a lot came up for me internally, like um, as a mother of a young man who cannot uh, communicate clearly. Am I taking advantage of him? Am I exposing him in a way that maybe there's, whether you think of it as a certain level of shock value or just by exposing the body that um, gets people to look, you know, am I respecting him? You know, I know that Debbie is respectful in all that she does, but these are my feelings as a mother. You know, am I protecting him or am I exposing him in a way that's not respectful of him? And I, I really had to spend some time sitting, a lot of time sitting with that. But then, Lori, it, it's also, though, that sense of once you get to that point, then what about what others might think? Right. There, there's that other element that, that has to be addressed. And when you say others, are you talking about anybody in particular? Viewers. Viewers. Viewers, right. Mm -hmm. Sure, and your family and, and your, your children and your, your ex-husband, you know, in, in family. Sure. Right. There was all of that as well. <laughs> yeah. 
and and there was some feedback in the family that was was uh questioning and resistant positive resistance resistant yeah. yeah resistant but i think when the work was up and here it's seeing the reactions of people that that was what was so profound to see that the effect that it was having was really touching people's hearts and getting a conversation going about things that uh, experiences that other people have had and caring for family members or people who just don't know what it's like because this is behind closed doors, this type of long-term care. And hearing people's appreciation, how their hearts are touched, just put it all in the right perspective. And nobody had any you know, people who viewed the exhibit, nobody had any feedback that was anything other than positive. So it helped to put it all really in the bigger picture frame of what this work is doing, how it's affecting people and the education and awareness that it's bringing out about epilepsy, about lifelong care and the challenges and the heart. Yeah, there's so much people don't know about epilepsy that they're starting to learn. And one of the things I wanted to mention in Batianex is about, well, let me just say that we're planning a, a panel discussion right now, um, including neurologists and, and art uh, therapists for our show right now. It's 1-1000 at uh, the Anschutz Medical Campus at uh, the University of Colorado in uh, Aurora. And one of the things that came up and this addresses what you were talking about earlier with um, with your mother-in-law, this idea that every person in the world at one time or another is going to be dealing with disability, whether it's yourself or, well, it will be at one point potentially, um, and the people that we care for. And even so, every, well, I, I don't want to say everyone, but people with disabilities are seen as other. You know, they're not given all, all rights and they are discriminated against. And so have, having this project, um, this is probably, I think, the fifth exhibition, but this one is, we've got 46 images up and we also have facts about epilepsy. It's sharing and giving information in this way of advocacy of through art and the discussion we're really excited about because it's going to touch on all of these things that people we don't talk about and to recognize what it's like for the caregiver and the person who has a, a disability i'm going to say quote unquote you know whether that's you know mental illness right or physical that they're not seen as a quote-unquote normal person. And yet maybe the tables need to be flipped on what really is normal. Yeah, disability is all part of normal society, everybody's lives. You mentioned earlier, Lori, that, I mean, uh, Debbie, that you hadn't done documentary-style work before. So this was new to you. So how did you sort of work that out for yourself, especially when it came to making choices about what images to make and what images not to make? Well, I started out doing street photography. And I, I would liken street photography to, uh, say, a musician knowing how to play a piano. When you can play the piano, you, it's easier to play other instruments. And I feel with street photography, because of all the components that are necessary to to make, I, I, I want to use the word important work, but, but everyone would have a different definition for what that important image might be like. But there's something so um, technical and visual and heartfelt, like there's so many components that are brought into street photography you know, the graphics and the visuals, as I'm saying, like the, the heart, the social aspects. 
that I, I used that. I was doing reportage work. I was photographing in Nicaragua, um, an event. This is way early on. This is like, like just when I switched from, from film to digital because I, I didn't want to bring all this film and have all this stuff when I was going there for, for a couple of weeks. Uh, I wanted to make my life easier. Photographing in, in this village of people that it was called wheels for humanity at the time and uh, they were helping people of all ages to give them whatever it was they needed to become mobile so whether it was a wheelchair or a wagon or some walking device to be able to move in any case so i was doing that stuff that's kind of my background and then each other project was i would say I led from intuition and heart, and I know it sounds kind of maybe a little silly when you say it that way, even though many photographers might say that, you know, we just kind of take the step and then we see where it leads us. So if I was doing something that had to do with perception, because I was a life coach at the time, and I'm working with clients and how can they shift perception of a certain circumstance in their life? Uh, to see how it would actually benefit them. How could they grow from the negativity perhaps they were experiencing? So I was doing that visually, uh, looking at even, let's say it's a corner uh, of, of a room and how the light hit it, and then photographing it in a way and making multiple exposures and then creating something so abstract that it had its own beauty and it wasn't a mundane corner. So I would do this, then I would do landscape, but it was just wherever it was taking me. And when I got to make this project with Lori and David, I started out reportage and street photography, you know, being in the moment where, what was the right, what was, what felt right, just go by feeling. And when it came time to process the work, first it was all black and white and simple, but I knew that wasn't the story. This story isn't simple. Their lives aren't simple. There are no answers to many things and never will be. So I ended up, and changing over time, ended up using surrealism and abstract and then text with Lori and not just straight. And I used, this is Lori's actual handwriting. I, I, Decided we, we did an event with the Lennox Gastaut Syndrome Foundation to raise awareness on their they have a November first event every year, and we showed work there. And I as I was printing the work, I'm like, oh wow, I got, I need captions. We need to explain a little bit about what's going on because the image isn't going to tell the whole story. There's so much more here. So I'd write captions, and then afterwards that led me to realizing. I need more from Lori. I need more of Lori's fingerprint here. And that's where I started to um, have her involvement, her narrative. And that's where it became, it was very important to show her life as a caregiver. And it just sort of evolved there. The color symbolizing different sorts of um, emotions uh, and, 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 also bringing this sense of lightness to their lives. It's not all, again, literally black and white. So there, there's so many different components that I felt, you know, when I started showing the work, people are like, and these are industry professionals, right? And they're like, no, it's gotta be this, it's gotta be that. And I knew what I was doing was different. And I knew a lot of people didn't like it and told me it was wasn't going to work or whatever negative things they might've said, but I kept going and I'm still going and there's more. I want to make it more um, dimensional and uh, do other things with it. And, and, and that's what I like. The sense of it will, will continue to evolve because I continue to, to shoot them. How did the, the title come about? One thousand. <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. Initially, it was Silent Buddha because Lori did a TEDx type talk years ago, a stunning, beautiful talk. And she called it My Silent Buddha uh, about David because he's, you know, not, not vocal. And then it changed because 
I actually went to, um, well, these weren't reviews, but it was like reviews. I was told that it could be construed as negative. And when I say negative, that it could have other, it could bring people to think other than what it was actually about. And I was told, well, do something that's more encompassing because you guys aren't Buddhists. You know what I mean? Like would be, we'd be appropriating something. We just wanted it to be a clean slate. One day I was looking at one of the uh, captions from Lori writings, and this is her counting the seizures. One, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000. I just... It's like, okay, that's it. It's one 1,000. This is something that is the beginning of something. And people can relate to one 1,000, however it is that they see. You know, everyone's counted before, right? So it's universal in that sense. And then um, my, my uh, intention is, of course, people to say, oh, what does that mean? And I hope that they'll want to find out more. One of the interesting things I think about for you, Lori, is that this project allows you to have a a way of being able to look at you and your and David's life in a way that you normally wouldn't be afforded, especially because you're constantly, you know, doing all these things to to take care of him. How has looking at the photographs and, you know, creating this collaboration in which you're writing text and, you know, working with your sister in terms of creating this project, what have you learned or what has surprised you about you and David's life that you don't think you might have been aware of otherwise? Hmm. Great question. Well, um, it's nice to sort of to pause and look at some of the images and notice things. So for instance, there are images where it's an image of me but David's always there. So there's one image Debbie took of me meditating and the monitor is right next to me. When David is in bed, I have a camera on him and I have that monitor with me throughout the night. And if I'm up and he's still in bed, I take that monitor with me everywhere. So it's just interesting to see in these shots that are seemingly just of me David is there too. That that was one thing that, that struck me. There was a time when I was looking at the photos and seeing a lot of negativity, and that made me sad. And so I always, I'm a type of person, I, I put a happy spin on things. So when I saw that, I was like, huh, is there some way to bring levity to this? And in the end, um, like through the captions that I wrote, it was difficult to bring levity to the captions that I wrote. But when I speak, so this is the exhibit right now is at a beautiful uh, gallery on the um, University of Colorado campus where they have a forum that is in the round and the images are actually in um, this uh, circular space around on the rotunda. Outside. Rotunda, yeah, it's around the forum itself. And so we have that space. We've been able to hold talks there. I have another one coming up in two weeks and this um, panel discussion that Debbie mentioned, which is going to be on February 7th. And so in those opportunities to address the people who've come to see the exhibit, that's where I bring the light. That's where I bring the levity. That's where I bring the positive aspects of this very challenging life. So that's been a huge gift for me to take a difficult situation and, and see the beauty in it. Yeah, she's really annoying that way. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's so funny, Betty next like I'll call over the years, I, I may have called Lori about something and saying how hard it was. And then she'll be like, well, let's see how you can look at it this. And I'll be like, all right, I just really want an event right now. And I don't want to feel good. So cut it out. <laughs> and then I'll talk to her about it when I'm feeling better. <laughs> Thank you.
This is our 16th season of production, and we're so glad we're still here after all these years. Along with the hundreds of guests that have appeared on the show, it's been you, the listeners, who have allowed our podcast to grow and thrive. Your embracing of the show, sharing it with others, and supporting us financially have made all of this possible. Now, whether you've just discovered the show or have been listening for years, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter today. Your final contributions, even just $5 a month, help us to meet the cost of production and address unexpected challenges like the recent flooding of our studio. You can contribute $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash thecandidframe. Though we'd love for you to be a long-time supporter, your commitment, even for just three to six months, would be helpful. Please consider doing it today. Thank you so much for your continued support. In the three years that my mother-in-law was living with, with us, I started photographing her life with us with the intent primarily of of allowing my wife and my sister-in-law to be able to see the love and the care that they exhibited towards their mother during that time. Because especially during that first six months of the first year, there was so much anxiety in terms of what do we do? You know, because this was the first for all of us. You know, we bring this, you know, this woman into our, in our home and she requires so much care and so much maintenance. And, you know, there was a, there was a lot of sort of fear involved. And then one day I walked into the kitchen and I saw my wife washing my mother-in-law's hair and I saw what was happening. And I grabbed the camera and I made the first of what, eventually be a, a series of images with the intent not so much of doing anything with them in terms of putting together a book or anything like like that but i wanted i knew that at some point they would i wanted them to see what wasn't obvious in that moment or in the various moments over the past of the three years that during all the health crises and all the challenges and all the struggles and all the depressing moments that there was a lot of love and joy that was happening between all of us and then after i think just before my mother-in-law passed away or afterwards my wife thanked me for making those photographs mm -hmm. because she got it at that point you know and, and you know and, and they trusted me so I, I went through the same journey that you did debbie in terms of you know using my my experience as a street photographer to choose the moments that I would photograph, but also being very as sensitive as I could to what was happening. And there were certain times that there were certain pictures that, that I chose not to make. And part of it was like, yeah. well, that's, that, that, that picture is, that picture, while it would be a quote-unquote good picture, it's not what this is about. And, uh, and I was okay with that. Mm -hmm. I think that many people want to photograph... Uh, Everybody makes pictures of their families, but I think at some point photographers want to be able to make pictures that reveal what it's like to be in that family. Because there's so many moments that pass between all of us as family members that are left undocumented. You know, we go to a baptism, we go to a bar mitzvah, we go to a birthday party, and, you know, we all make the, okay, everybody get in the picture. Let's make a photograph and document <laughs> that we're all together. But there are all these moments that we remember that are rarely photographed. And how has this project sort of shaped how you see photographing family moments? Not specifically for this project, but just in, in, in general. It's interesting because this is so very singular. Though I photographed my mom and dad when my mother had a heart valve replaced. So it seems to me <laughs> I'm going more toward these more serious moments where I'm recognizing how precious life is. And maybe it's, it's a, an unconscious way of holding on to the people I love. I don't know. I also started a project last year where I'm using old family photos and I'm manipulating them and writing things on them. And, and then I have this 
other, maybe it's it's side by side sort of thing. I don't know because it's all very nascent. But then other images that I've made without people, where then I create a fictional story and put the text in that. So somehow there is very much of the dynamic of family and very different narratives that can be told and. I I honestly created because even though they're based on memory, some of them are recreated because memory, as we know, is elusive. And I I like to give myself permission to to do things and just figure them out later and have them come together. So families, to answer your question, it's, it's definitely something that will continue to evolve as I make photos because I, you know, I'm looking at some on the wall now with my grandchildren and my children and my, my, my folks. And um, it's, you don't want that picture where everybody says, Hey, let's all get together. And then, and then like you see a moment, you know, you've done this, you see a moment, you want to capture it and, and you're like freeze, right? You say, Mm -hmm. don't move because you know they're going to move and you'll lose the shot. And when you say freeze, what do they do? They put their shoulders together, tilt their heads and smile. (laughs) And so, because either way, I'm not going to get the shot, but it's hysterical to me. Maybe that's the the, the next shot. Say freeze and see what everybody does. That would be a funny book. (laughs) It has to feel for you, you, Laurie, especially because how much you have to do that, there was so much about your life with David that was undocumented just because you didn't have the, the time or the opportunity to be able to do it. When you take a look at these pictures in terms of how it allows you to remember. Yeah. Um, there are two photos that come to mind that Debbie took of me that really captured um, this experience of being a caregiver. And in each of them, I'm, I guess, lost in, in thought or emotion. They're beautiful pictures. The one, Deb, I'm referring to is where I'm standing in the kitchen. It's evening. I have my arms claw, uh, uh, crossed, and I'm looking toward the couch where presumably David is because that's where he hangs out, and I have a very pensive uh, look on my face. And when I saw the photo, I was like, wow, yeah, you really captured the way. Oh, yeah, we called that one the weight of responsibility. Yeah, that's the weight of responsibility. Yeah, you, you really captured, Deb, my feeling that responsibility for David. And again, this is one of those photos where David, he's not actually in the shot, but he is because I'm looking toward the couch where he's probably laying there and I'm probably assessing perhaps how he's doing or how the day had been. Cause from the lighting, you could see it's in, it's in the evening. And then there's another, well, actually he's upstairs. He's upstairs sleeping. What uh-huh. you're doing is you're figuring out what you need to do for him. You're, you're, uh, uh, what do you do with the medicine? Yeah. Uh, with the mortar. Yeah. She's preparing all those meds for the next morning. Mary next, her, her day does not end. You know, uh, Lori, once David's in bed, she's now preparing and getting things ready. What all the different things that she needs to make to give him his medicine right away in the morning, whether it's for her or for the a caregiver who's going to come in the morning. And then there's another photo. I don't know where you got that one. That's just of my head. But it's a very, very uh, deep shot, deep look on my face. And so these kinds of photos capture my experience for, to reflect back to me, to me, for me to see it. And it's interesting. It also brings to mind before Debbie started doing this, there would be many times where things were rough. David had a seizure, um, they had lost control of his bowels, got cut, falling from a seizure, didn't have his helmet. I mean, like these gruesome kind of images, if you can imagine, of me caring for this individual um, 
and there may be blood involved there may be bodily fluids involved there and and it it could be in the middle of the night and tending to him to his safety cleaning up after him cleaning his body and many times i felt so alone and i and i literally felt like who who sees this nobody sees this i'm alone in this mm-hmm. and yet now it is being witnessed and i sort of feel there's value to it because it's being witnessed and because it's being shared yeah i, I completely get that cuz this is this is not a, a a topic that people open up about normally right you know because yeah. it's, it's it's incredibly private and especially when you're thinking about talking about the incredible vulnerability of somebody they really care for. There's a reticence to, to, to share it, even though in that moment you need to share it with someone, that you need to talk about it. I, my brother, who is my primary caregiver from my, from my mom, you know, I, I know he goes through a lot of stress having to be there constantly in terms of being able to sort of take care of, take care of him. But, Having experienced what we did with my mother-in-law, it gives me uh, an understanding and an appreciation for what he's doing that I'm able to not give him platitudes, but show appreciation and be grateful for what he's doing and letting him know that uh, he doesn't have to be perfect, you know, because it's just, you make yeah. mistakes, it's right? Mess- yeah. Yeah. It's and it's, it's exhausting. And you talk about your meditative practice, and I, I don't want our conversation to, to go without, you know, discussing the importance of self-care. Oh, yeah. Because as caregivers, uh, we're caring, caring for everybody else except ourselves, especially when it's like an everyday thing. Tell us about that, that journey for you in terms of, despite the many challenges that you face on a day-to-day basis, being able to take care of yourself. Yeah, it was very, very hard when the kids were young. I have three boys. And with David not sleeping at night and me not getting enough sleep, it, it was very, very challenging, even with the the, the respite uh, help that I did have. Um, so that was a, a process uh, of, of learning how to really give myself what I needed. And when I first... So I started exploring spiritual teachings about 15 years ago. At that time, I lived in New Jersey, so I had an opportunity to go and hear some of the popular spiritual teachers um, who'd come to Manhattan, Eckhart Tolle, um, Marianne Williamson, Wayne Dyer at the time. And I found myself sitting there in the audience listening to these talks and thinking to myself, I so want to follow this spiritual path, but I sit down to meditate and I fall asleep immediately because I haven't slept enough. <laughs> and I, I literally sat there thinking, you're not talking to me. You don't know the, my, my life. I, I don't know how I can do this. And little by little, things got easier with David sleeping. So I did get more sleep and little by little, I, I was able to meditate longer. And it's, it's fascinating because I've come sort of full circle in my life. Now I, I work as uh, part-time as a life coach and I lead um, support groups for parents of um, whether children or adult children with any kinds of issues. And it, feels like I've now had the opportunity to become that person that I wanted speaking to me, that I can be that for other people now, which is a beautiful full circle for me mm-hmm. and brings a lot of meaning to my life. Um, but just specifically getting back to self-care, that's a big portion of what I do when I have uh, somebody caring for David. I 
um, exercise is huge. I, I get out, I cycle, I hike, I run in the mountains. I live right near the, the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, my meditation practice is very important to me every day. So the, the physical, the spiritual, and spending time with, with friends whenever I can, those, all those aspects are important, you know, holistic the whole human being you need to address the physical, the emotional, the relational, the spiritual. So I, I put a lot of attention on, on all of it. Oh, and you do yoga as well. Yes. And the other thing, though, I want to mention is even though Lori wouldn't say she's an artist, she creates the most amazing meals for David. And she's an artist in that way. And And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think... I, from our conversation yesterday, you know, working on this panel discussion, and I, I mentioned we had this one neurologist who also is a, a parent uh, of a child with uh, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. We were saying, well, what, where's that art, you know? Is there some, is, she says, oh, well, I'm not an artist and blah, blah, blah. And then she was saying, well, actually, I am a really great storyteller. And she's become this great storyteller as this advocate for her her daughter and thinking of Lori and her art of how she makes these amazing healthy healthy beyond healthy like the way David eats is pretty phenomenal uh, we should all you know enjoy one of Lori's great meals but it's this idea that each of us has our own gift and it's important as you're talking about the self-care this element of art however that may be, uh, take shape in one person's life, whether it's how they fix their home or how they dress themselves. There is that sense of creativity, which I think is a very important part of self-care because it's expression. Absolutely. Yep. Well, the last question I ask each guest is uh, have them recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired oh, or someone you recently discovered. So. Debbie, oh who would gosh. that photographer be? I completely forgot you were going to ask that. and didn't think because <laughs> I know, the, I mean, my friends and colleagues, you amongst them are photographers, artists, humanitarians that I look up to. Uh, I'm, I'm Because of that and right here in this moment, because I am looking at an image of one of my colleagues and because I have another one that popped in my head, I'm going to say two. What I'm going to say, Eleanor Carucci. Eleanor um, photographs family, as you know, and, and, and the most vulnerable and powerful. And she shows rawness in the most loving, compassionate ways. And she does it in the moment things are happening. And I, I, I just, I'm amazed by her work and, and I'm grateful for her as a teacher. The other is my friend, um, Matthew Finley, whose work I'm looking at right now, uh, and the work that he makes, I wish I could hold it up and show it to you. Um, it's, a, uh, it's not even his image. It's a found image that he's created a story. I was talking about fictional stories before. He creates a fictional story of, of um, his family, as if it were his uncle who was gay at a time when we know, when, you know, in the 50s when it wasn't easy to, to have a different lifestyle. And he creates this scenario where it was wonderful. And he makes this up in this beautiful fictional way that he's reinventing history. And I guess I'm thinking of Matthew like Eleanor in the sense of family and, and love and understanding and, and making the gift of compassion and individuality through imagery. I mean, we, we are advocates telling stories in, in many ways. And um, I, I thank them and I thank you. And I thank all of the wonderful artists that I know uh, who make me smile and, and feel my heart open just thinking about them. Well, thanks for sharing your stories with us uh, today. I really do appreciate it. So, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And great chatting. Great pleasure.
thanks to Debbie and Lori for joining us. Find out more about Debbie and her work by visiting DebbieRLookPhotography.com. Debbie and Lori will be taking part in a panel discussion on February 7th titled Revealing Art, Disability, Stigma, and Compassion. You can find out more details or RSVP for the event by following the links in the show notes or visiting the Candid Frame website. And if you're a fan of our work, there are a variety of ways you can show your support. You can write reviews on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts or share a favorite episode on social networks, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Remember to use the hashtag at TheCandidFrame. You can support us also financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. You can also support the show by purchasing my latest ebook, The Visual Path, which contains a series of personal essays on my own photographic journey over the last three years. Purchase a copy today for just $10 by clicking on the link in the show notes or visit the Candid Frame store on our website. Thanks to Robert Klontz and David Colby for their generous contributions. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.